0: Part Seven, Section Two of the Trial of Callista Blake. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Roger Moline. The Trial of Callista Blake by Edgar Pangborn. Part Seven, Section Two. Your witness, Mr. Hunter. Edith Nolan thought with an edge of panic, "Is that all, Cecil?" The old man's face was saying a kind of good-bye to her, turning away, not apparently displeased or disappointed, satisfied, rather, so far as one could hope to read a face that must also be presenting a front to the gaze of the jury. But there was so much more that ought to have been said. The intimate truths of personality, relation, individual quality, that became no longer small once your vision is clear enough to separate the general from the specific to see the primary core of self and the universe its matrix at one and the same time neither too much distorted it seemed to edith that she had hardly begun to talk to those twelve who were certainly not all dull not all hostile Was there, for example, no way at all to explain that Callista had a comic brown mole near her navel? That when she was absorbed in reading, her left forefinger twisted a black curl above her ear, always the same curl, the same small motion, and that these facts, alone and of themselves, were reasons as great, valid, finely convincing, as any of the other reasons why she must not be slain? Still, it was not, ultimately, a question of explaining anything, of offering facts to twelve other minds with the assumption that they could view them as you did. They could not. If it isn't in nature for two pairs of eyes ever to observe a simple physical object in quite the same manner, how grotesque to expect twelve minds to agree, or even approximate agreement, in the consideration of an abstract idea. What was needed, she thought, was that twelve minds should learn, here and now and very quickly, a type of humility in the face of the unknown that even the strongest and best-schooled intelligences found it hard to achieve with study and leisure and every advantage of the past's accumulated resources. Unknown, indeed, these people knew nothing of Callista Blake. They never could, in the nature of things, know much, never acquire more than a brief distorted glimpse of her, and that under conditions so outrageously far from the daily norm, that her actual self appeared to them as no more than the flicker of a shadow. The kindly and badly troubled little man up there on the bench knew far more about her than they did, simply because he was trained to observation and the disciplines of independent thought. AND HE KNEW ONLY A TRIFLE. HOW LITTLE I KNOW MYSELF, OR EVER WILL KNOW. SHE CONTROLLED HER FACE TO THE SEMBLANCE OF TRANQUILLITY. THE long jawed MAN HAD ARRIVED WITH HIS ATHLETIC GRACE, A FOOT RAISED COMFORTABLY ON THE PLATFORM THAT ELEVATED THE WITNESS CHAIR, HIS CHARCOAL-GRAY SUIT JUST RIGHT FOR THE OCCASION, NEAT AND GRAVE LIKE A UNIFORM. At close range, Edith noticed his expression was not particularly cold or severe. His eyes were thoughtful, his features betrayed no ugly tension. What is cruelty, anyway, and how do you read it in another? It seemed to be present like an occasional tick, but might not really be, in the vacuous face of that oaf hogue in the front row of the jury box. But in T.J. Hunter? At the moment he looked like a solemn salesman about to give her a well-spoken pitch, say on insurance or a middle-priced car. You would do virtually anything, would you not, for your friend Callista Blake? The best thing I can do for her is tell the truth about her and about these events, so far as I know it, and that I've done. Your answer is not quite responsive, Miss Nolan. I think it is, but I'll be more specific if you wish. I would not commit crimes for Callista Blake or any other friend, if only because in the long run you do your friend no service that way, compounding wrong things instead of lessening them. And I would not lie for her on any important matter, because it happens the truth is best for her as well as for me. THAT'S QUITE A PRAGMATIC ATTITUDE, ISN'T IT? MY, THE HIGH INTELLECTUAL PLANE. NATURALISTIC MIGHT BE A BETTER WORD, MR. DISTRICT ATTORNEY, BUT PRAGMATIC, IF YOU LIKE. IF AN ETHICAL PRINCIPLE ISN'T AT LEAST THEORETICALLY PRACTICAL IN HUMAN AFFAIRS, I'D RATHER LEAVE IT IN THE BOOKS. I SEE YOUR POINT. IF ONLY YOU DID. You wouldn't kill in defense of Callista Blake? Why, I might. If it's a clear case of protecting a friend's life, the law generally calls it justifiable homicide, doesn't it? But for you, it would have to be a clear case, is that right? I mean, you're referring to something on the level of shooting a burglar to protect the household, something like that? I suppose so. I've never encountered any situation like that, so I really can't predict how I'd behave. Let me make sure I understand your position, Miss Nolan. You do not believe in absolute ethical principles? Before I can answer that, I must have your personal definition of the word absolute. You must be familiar with the term, are you not? "'Yes, but there would be at least five or six definitions of it in any unabridged dictionary, and I can't know which one you have in mind unless you tell me.' "'Well, I had in mind the meaning which I think is generally used in philosophical discussions— self-contained, self-dependent, ultimate— in other words, free from the limitations of human error, human perception. Thank you. He is a shade tougher than I thought. In that case, the answer would have to be that ethical principles are human achievements, human ways of thinking and acting, and I don't see how a human activity can ever be free from the limitations of human error and human perception. Very plausible. I see you've done quite a bit of thinking along these lines is that what you mean by what you called a a naturalistic attitude i think that was your term in part yes oh there's more as a well-read man mr hunter you must know that the conception of naturalistic ethics is at least as old as confucius that libraries have been filled with it and that we could talk here on the subject until the end of next year, with a great deal left unsaid. Well, I'm afraid there might be a fatigue factor. There might indeed. Was I quick enough to steal some of that applause of witless laughter? It would take quite a while just to find a little agreement on definitions and first premises. Maybe. He looked downright friendly, she thought, until you noticed the rigid watchfulness. His smile was comfortable. He probably felt that the rumble of amusement was, on the whole, one for his side. It probably was. She risked a glance toward the jury. Most of them looked puzzled, but none really irritated except little Mr. Anson. Flint-faced Fielding seemed coldly interested, but whether in a favorable or hostile way there was no telling in helen butler edith saw a tiny flicker surely friendliness as their eyes met for an instant it might mean recognition and memory but if miss butler had any thought of disqualifying herself because of a trivial meeting months ago when they had not even exchanged names she would surely have done it already Best not look at her again. I think, Miss Nolan, I'd better go back to my original question. I gave you my definition of absolute, you remember, and you said, which sounded reasonable to me, that human activity can't very well be free from human error. Now, may I take that as a positive no to my earlier question? YOU DO NOT BELIEVE IN ABSOLUTE ETHICAL PRINCIPLES? NOT QUITE, MR. HUNTER. SOME ETHICAL PRINCIPLES TAKE ON THE APPARENT QUALITY OF ABSOLUTES, OR OF UNIVERSAL LAW, SIMPLY BECAUSE VIRTUALLY ALL THE MEMBERS OF A SOCIETY ENDORSE THEM. IN OTHER WORDS, WE ACT AS IF THOSE PRINCIPLES WERE ABSOLUTES, WHETHER WE CAN JUSTIFY IT LOGICALLY OR NOT. SO LET ME PUT IT THIS WAY. I believe in following certain ethical principles as strictly as though they had the nature of universal law, so long as my conscience, my own intelligence, can agree to it." I see. But that means, doesn't it, that your conscience is actually, to you, the supreme judge? In a sense, it has to be. "'For example,' said Judge Mann suddenly, and edith turned to him feeling as though he had reached out a hand to aid her in crossing slippery rocks above a torrent for example if an individual accepts the orders or doctrines of an external authority would you agree miss nolan that his acceptance is itself an act of his own conscience or will or intelligence yes your honor that expresses what i had in mind the judge said in fact, the individual can have no dealings, no contact with ideas or doctrines, or even with simple observation of the physical world, unless there is first a positive action of his own intelligence. Is this still in line with your thought, Miss Nolan? Yes, Your Honor. And I'll be done in a moment, Mr. Hunter. And finally, would you agree, Miss Nolan, that this decidedly elementary fact is often overlooked in our everyday thinking perhaps because it's so obvious that we aren't willing to give it a second glance or work out its implications i believe so we accept the fact the way animals accept the air they breathe and with no more thought yes said judge Mann, his gaze leaving her maybe reluctantly as he scribbled something on his notepad. Life was breathing air a good many million years before a fairly advanced science noticed that air was a mixture of different gases, had weight and mass, other properties. Well, go on, Mr. Hunter." Edith thought, "'Maybe that'll learn him.' And over there beside her friend the old man's dark eyes were watching saying as plainly as eyes could say it that he was pleased with her and that he was profoundly frightened. "'I've enjoyed this little excursion into philosophy, Miss Nolan, and I'm glad his honor lent us a hand with it. Way over my depth, I'm afraid, but now I suppose we'd better get back to the facts. Well, one thing first. Am I right in supposing that in your view this—' this act of acceptance i think you called it has to happen first before one is even allowed to believe in a supreme being she could not help glancing toward the judge who was watching the prosecutor coldly intent and unjudiciously angry the corner of her eye gave her the solemn approving nod of the juror emma beals the sudden relaxation everything's all right boys IN THE FOREMAN, PETER ANSON. SHE UNDERSTOOD THAT JUDGE MANN WAS WAITING FOR HER. MR. HUNTER, I ALSO ENJOYED THAT EXCURSION INTO PHILOSOPHY, BUT UNLESS THE COURT RULES IT'S RELEVANT, I WILL NOT DISCUSS MY VIEWS ON RELIGION WITH YOU. THEY ARE NOT RELEVANT TO THE CASE, SAID JUDGE MANN, AND THE WITNESS IS NOT REQUIRED TO ANSWER. HUNTER NODDED POLITELY. I've certainly no wish to press the point. But may I ask—and, by the way, I won't urge you to respond to this question either, if you'd rather not—may I ask, Miss Nolan, whether you're willing to state the reasons for your refusal to answer? Quite willing. Religion is a topic that too easily stirs up a lot of emotion if there's any serious discussion or conflict of opinion. I assume the members of the jury belong to more than one religious faith. Some of them might share my views, others might be offended by them. I can't tell. But since religion, so far as I can see, has absolutely nothing to do with the guilt or innocence of my friend, I think it would make no sense anyhow for me to get into the subject the old man over there nodded slightly maybe a kind of cheering a way of saying his gal red could take care of herself but can i that's reasonable said t j hunter almost affectionately you're right it's a touchy topic right also that it has no direct bearing on the question of guilt or innocence and I'm as anxious as you are to avoid stirring up needless emotions or side issues. The only thing I do wish I could get at along this line, my only reason for speaking of it at all, well, Miss Nolan, if you have no unqualified belief in absolute ethical principles, and if a question about belief in God is merely distasteful to you, don't you think that might have some slight bearing on your credibility as a witness in a murder trial? The old man was standing up, his voice slow in coming, slow moving when it came, as if each word must force its way past an obstacle in his throat. Mr. Hunter, that is vicious and contemptible. And before stage anger took control of the handsome mask with the shovel chin, edith glimpsed the fact that t j hunter was at last genuinely pleased about something i must ask you to watch your choice of language counsellor no more of this said judge mann the attention of both counsel please your question mr hunter was entirely out of order because it implied that a person with independent views on religion has a lower regard for the truth than others "'an implication with no slightest basis in fact or logic. "'From her answers, her manner, her educational background, "'there is every reason to suppose that Miss Nolan "'has quite as high a regard for the truth "'as anyone else who has testified in this case. "'You will withdraw your question. "'Mr. Warner, your remark to the prosecutor "'was ill-chosen and unparliamentary. IT CALLS FOR AN APOLOGY TO HIM, I THINK. HUNTER SPOKE GENTLY. I WITHDRAW MY QUESTION. MR. HUNTER, SAID THE OLD MAN WEARILY, I WAS INFLUENCED BY PERSONAL FEELING AS I SHOULD NOT HAVE BEEN, AND MY WORDS WERE ILL CHOSEN. MY APOLOGY, SIR, IF YOU CAN FIND IT ACCEPTABLE. VERY GENTLY HUNTER SAID, WHY, OF COURSE, CECIL and more gently still i will ask no further questions of this witness she stood up dizzy some passage of words between cecil and the judge redirect examination there would be none she heard the judge say after an impatient throat clearing that she was excused and through a sudden maddening colorless blur she saw or imagined that Cecil was achieving a sort of smile for her. She stepped down carefully, concentrated on preventing her fingers from reaching after a handkerchief or rising toward her face. If she could keep her head turned away from the jury, they might not see. Her seat was over there somewhere, beyond the bald skull of the fattest reporter at the press tables. Cecil was still smiling, more or less. But I lost. I lost. Callista, what have I done to you? End of Part 7, Section 2 Recording by Roger Meline.